I get a fair number of listeners that ask how to choose the correct foot peg. Now, mainly this is because we have IMS products advertising their foot pegs in the show, but it got me to thinking about how do you choose the correct foot peg in general, not just the IMS ones. So I did a little research on the topic and I was surprised to find just how little information there was on choosing the correct foot peg for your ride. There was many articles on foot pegs out there, testing this foot peg, testing that foot peg, but not how to decide which peg is right for you. And one of the articles I stumbled across with choosing foot pegs, it wasn't for adventure bikes, but but anyway, I had a quick look at it. And then I went on and I found another one with a similar title. And as I went through it, I realized immediately that it's just a copy and paste, really, of the previous site's information. It was it was slightly reworded to try and make it look original, but you couldn't hide the fact it was the same information. It was copied and spewed out again under the guise of being original. Now, this isn't unusual because many times when we're researching things on the internet, we find sites that reuse some blatantly copy and paste the other site's information to try and make it appear as original. There's all kinds of motivations for this, um, but sometimes it's by accident. Someone sees something, they read it somewhere, and they just copy that information and put it out as if it's their information as well or if it, as if it's fact. And all this got me to thinking about a guy I interviewed a while back named Warren Milner. Warren spoke to me about uh, how the internet distorts facts about motorcycles and how it's probably influenced you too by circulating information that's either skewed or, or just plain wrong, or in many cases, it's out of context. Now, this is going to run us a little long today on, on this show. And if you heard Warren before, it's well worth listening to again, because there's so much great information. In fact, I've had many comments about this interview in particular being one of the biggest eye-openers and one of the best informational episodes that we ever put out. So first, we're going to tackle how to choose a foot peg, not just IMS foot pegs, but foot pegs in general for your motorcycle. And then we're going to dig in to the internet issue. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Okay, my name's Chris um, Harden. I'm at IMS Products. I'm the, the general manager there. So uh, I've been there for a long time now, like probably 14 years. Chris, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Hi, thanks for having me, Jim. You're a rider as well. Yeah, I do, actually. I, I primarily am a dual sport rider. I, I like to go see pretty scenery is my my favorite part of it. So I don't usually take anything too challenging, but I love to go out. What, what sort of dual sport are you riding? You know, I live in uh, California at the base of Big Bear Mountain. So I'm able to to conveniently ride out of my house and just go straight up the, the mountain, see the the trees and forests. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of trees in my my non-riding time, I take the family hiking and things like that. So anytime I can, I can get in the forest, I'm a pretty happy guy. Well, as you mentioned, you work for IMS. You guys advertise on the show. But what I want to talk about here is more general, general foot peg talk. And um, eventually we're going to talk about how to choose the correct foot peg. And if you look in the market, there are so many foot pegs to choose from. I mean, I mean, not yeah. just with IMS, I mean, with everybody. Everyone has their own ideas of design and there's just a, I mean, endless choice and yet no instructions on how to actually get down and do it. So when we come back, that's what we're going to dig into first. 
Best Rest Products makes the number one tire pump in the business for us motorcyclists. It's made in the USA, has a lifetime warranty. There are the place to buy Google Tech filters in North America. Their website, www.cyclepump.com. All bikes need tough, reliable strapping systems, and Green Chili Adventure Gear makes heavy-duty strapping systems to fit all motorcycles. And you can turn any bag into panniers using the unique strapping system, all available at greenchiliadv.com. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since way back in 2002, and they have 45,000 parts and accessories online ready to ship to your door at a moment's notice. They also have an online fiche that's just amazing for looking up parts. MaxBMW.com is a website. They have an e-rider newsletter you can sign up to for free. MaxBMW.com. That's M-A-X-B-M-W.com. So let let's start off with uh, as let's start off talking about the construction. I think one of the big things you notice right off the bat as a consumer is the material that they're made of. There's cast and there's aluminum and there's titanium and forged and stamped and all different yeah. sorts of things. Can you sort of brush over that and sort of give us an overview on the materials used? Yeah, absolutely. Um, depending depending which um, manufacturer of peg you're you're going with, there's there's a few primary ones that, that come to mind. Um, the, the really old school traditional way would be, you know, just like a, a stamped steel peg. Um, then and that's your OEM uh, style as well. Yeah. A lot of the OEMs, not all the OEMs, but a lot of the OEMs are still using that. And, um, that's, that's a real traditional way to kind of do it. It's how they, they started doing it, you know, probably in the seventies. Um, then, um, in, in most of your, your modern aftermarket pegs, you're looking at either like a billet aluminum, a cast, um, steel or cast stainless steel. And then, um, for, for the guys who are really weight conscious, there's some titanium options out there as well. Okay. Now, as far as adventure riding, in my mind, titanium is just a waste of money. You're, you're spending money. Yeah. Uh, well, it's it. not even that. The, the, the real, the real advantage of titanium is that it's super light. That's, that's what people who are buying titanium are buying it for. Um, but the, the real disadvantage is for, for all the strength and weight savings that titanium has, it's exceptionally brittle. So if you crash oh. on titanium, um, you're, you're very likely to, to break it. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. I mean, wait for an adventure bike. I mean, forget about it, you know. Yeah, uh, they're just, so heavy to begin with. And eat less at lunch, you know. You, yeah, <laughs> and exactly. And you're going to save that weight. So so if we look at those materials, what's the difference? Why why are some companies choosing one over another, cast, aluminum, stamped? Um, well, if we start with, you know, an aluminum peg, for example. Uh, aluminum is really nice because you can make it look really pretty. You can anodize it very easily. Um, it's easy to work with, with the modern tools that are out there. So with, with the advancements you've seen in CNC machinery, um, and things like that, you, you can build the design in a computer pretty quickly and you can, you can be in production in a hurry. Um, you can, you can make new models off kind of, you know, just whatever you were thinking that day and, and spit it out even on a, a one-to-one for your customer. Not that that's always cost effective, but, um, it's really easy to work with, make a new design, get something out, make it look appealing aesthetically. Um, aluminum is really light, um, which is which is nice. It's its biggest downfall is going to be 
um, it's it's fairly soft. So it's it's not brittle like we were talking about with titanium. Um, but ti- it's a it's a confusing discussion to have. But titanium is harder but more brittle. So titanium won't bend. So when you when you fall on titanium, as soon as it hits its its bending point, it snaps. Um, aluminum will bend. The problem is it, it almost goes too far the other way. Aluminum will bend and snap quickly because it's um, it's such a soft material. Mm. So that's that's kind of its drawback. So and also it's fatigue, isn't it? When you're talking about it with aluminum, I mean, I know you take a piece of yeah. metal, for instance, uh, just a cold rolled steel uh, bar or flat yeah. piece, and bend it back and forth. It take quite a bit to bend or to break, right. but an aluminum one, like two bends, and it breaks. Yeah, and, and that's the thing with uh, aluminum is like like you say, because it's soft, it's it's always bending little bits here, little bits there, little bits here, little bits there. Um, so it's it's gonna wear out in that way. It'll also even wear just from abrasion, you know, as, as your feet are on the pegs, as you, as you go through sand, as you, as you grind on rocks, it it will wear away. So it's kind of doing both at the same time. It's, Mm. it's fatiguing and wearing. We use it as skid plates though. And it seems to be excellent for skid plates. Yeah. Well, with skid plates, what's nice is you've got kind of a, a big sheet and it's kind of taking that impact. My my personal opinion, even on skid plates, is that that softness is probably good. Um, I prefer actually a plastic skid plate myself, just because when you have something that's so firmly attached to your your frame, if it does take an impact, you you have to have some flex to to protect the mounts on your frame and those those gouges and things, um, it's not supporting as much weight consistently as when you're standing on a, on a peg. So, um, it, it tends in my opinion to, to not see those shortcomings as, as frequently as a skid plate as it would in a peg. Now, what about forged stamped cast? Yeah. So then you, then you start getting into steel, um, steel, the, the, primary options you'll really see available today are are either stamped or cast. I, I can't think of anybody offhand who's making an aftermarket peg that's stamped um, just because it's it's such an old technology. It's, it's not exceptionally pretty. It's not exceptionally strong. It's not exceptionally light. It, it doesn't have a, a ton of, of great advantages um, that when you're trying to market to a customer that this is this is a great peg. Um, so then you go into cast options. Um, a lot of the stock pegs will be kind of a cast standard steel. Um, that's that's really inexpensive to to do. So that that'd be an advantage there. Um, we all of our pegs that we make we make um, out of a seventeen four cast stainless steel. Um, we go with the stainless just because um, it has a lot of properties that are beneficial. It, it doesn't rust we're able to treat it in such a way that we can give it some of that flex we were talking about with the skid plates on your frame. We, we want our peg to, to bend a little bit because we don't want to snap off, you know, your mounts on your, your pegs on that frame. Um, but you can also get a strength that's, that's not possible in something like aluminum. So it's kind of mixing the benefits of an aluminum and a titanium peg as far as durability goes. It's, it's hard like a titanium peg is. So it's, it takes a strong impact without breaking, but it's got a little bit of give in it 
um, like the aluminum peg, so it doesn't snap as as readily as a, a titanium peg will. Your your biggest drawback with these cast pegs is going to be they're they're generally speaking heavier than their aluminum and titanium counterparts. So you're you're trading that kind of you know motocross light feel, um, especially with with a lot of our pegs. We go with durability in mind. So we, we don't like you were pointing out, especially with like an adventure bike, we don't really look at weight when we're designing a peg as a primary concern. We want something that's, that's going to get you home. So, um, the drawback would be their weight, their, their benefits are they, they're going to outperform just about every peg on a durability scale. See, the, the thing is, when I think of cast, I think of like, you know, old style cast. When you see a cast iron block that you used to get or yeah. maybe a cast iron frying pan, something like that. Cast in that form tends to be brittle, um, yeah. fairly easy to drill and, and whatnot, mm-hmm. but it's but it tends to be yeah. fairly brittle. What is it about the the um, the mix that you're making that, make, that makes it so strong, even though it's cast? What it, what it really comes down to with the cast for us is we've been doing it long enough that we've been able to to kind of fine tune it. So we start with something like what you're talking about. You cast it; it's kind of brittle, um, and then there's there's po- post processing that happens. So you heat treat it and you anneal it, and by by adjusting the heat and reforming how the bonds come together, uh, my understanding of it is that essentially when you cast it, you've got a bunch of molecules kind of butted up against each other. And the, the heat treating and annealing kind of interlocks them all. So now they're all like a mesh that's together and they can kind of stretch like a almost like a net kind of back and forth and, and come back to a, a strong position without just splitting apart like the Red Sea, you know. Mm. Speaking for adventure riding only, what do you think of the weak points in a foot peg that, that an adventure rider should be concerned with? If I'm an adventure rider, and even me, like I was telling you, as a, a primarily a dual sport rider, for me, I think of being out in the middle of the forest. I think of being somewhere where cellular interception isn't great, where where I'm you know distant from society, and want, wanting to be able to to get back home. That's one of the reasons why when we design our pegs, durability is so important to us, because. If you if you lose a peg and you're you're trying to ride your your bike back and now you're assuming you've also crashed and you're probably sore you potentially have injuries and now now you have to get back out of wherever you've spent the last two to three hours getting into and now you you don't have that control point to, to ride on you don't have that that comfort level you're you're fatiguing more rapidly you got your foot up on the case or something like that. Um, that's generally speaking, especially for an adventure rider, my biggest concern. Um, then you start moving into concerns of the peg as it's um, on the bike. How can it increase your performance? Because we, you know, the OEM manufacturers, if you go buy a, a replacement peg for your bike, you're going to see on their microfishes, they call it a foot rest. It's somewhere to set your foot while you're riding. We, we strongly believe that the peg should go quite a bit farther than that. It's, it's one of the main control points of a bike. Um, the proper peg should have the ability to, to increase your ability to ride well. Um, you should be able to, to weight your pegs and, and control the bike. And, um, you know, there's, there's really three points of your body that are always in touch with the, 
the vehicle. It's, it's your, your hands at the handlebars, it's your butt on the seat and it's your feet on the grip or on the pegs. And so, um, we feel like it, a proper peg should be able to increase your performance. Mm, yeah, I, I often say that as well. I mean, it's a, uh, the, the foot pegs are, are probably the most important contact point. Uh, they're the most right. vulnerable. Um, they can create the most problem, in particular, if you're leaving the rubber pads on uh, from, the, from the stock bike. Some of the stock bikes come with those little rubber inserts. Right. Um, but it's a major contact point, yeah, for, for controlling the bike. Okay, so, so now the big question is, how does a rider decide what peg to buy? I already mentioned about the, the, yeah. the vast choices that we have here. Now, I know you're IMS, so obviously you're going to right. bias somewhat to IMS. But but I'm thinking like even if we talk about your lineup with, with IMS, people can take that. And if they don't want to buy those pegs, I mean, they can go and, and use that information um, against other pegs, you know, looking mm-hmm. uh, and trying to decide because there's, you know, there's big, there's small, there's wide, there's yeah. sharp teeth, there's dull teeth. Where do you start? Yeah. And that's, it's a really complex question. It's something that we, we've been making pegs for so long. We've, I can't tell you how many times we've round tabled it and said, you know, is there a, is there a magic perfect peg? The, the and per- I think, well, well, let me, let me interrupt you, Chris. Sorry, but I was going to say is if you search online for this, all you find is people saying, I want to put pegs on this bike. What do you guys think on forums? And everybody yeah. comes back and say, Oh, I run these and I run these and I run those. Well, that doesn't tell you anything because every rider is different. Right. The chance yeah. of one rider being exactly the same as another with their bike and their gear and the way they ride and what they expect. Yeah. And that's, and that's the same conclusion we came to is there's no one peg fits all philosophy. If, if you're trying to do that, you're, you're missing the concept because as you pointed, not only is every rider different, but every bike is different. Every type of terrain you might ride is different. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the way you might ride is different. So you, you have to take all of these things into consideration for, for you individually as a rider is how do you like to ride? Where do you like to ride? You know, even so much when do you like to ride? You know, is it is it wet or is it dry? So um, you know, looking into each of these, these factors, you, you have to look at, look at yourself as a writer. If, I mean, we can go into depth on each of these, but one of my, one of my friends at, at work, when he, we've tossed this around and kind of discussed this, he says, one, one great way to look initially as a great starting point is what kind of tires on your bike. If, if you can look at the tire of your bike and say, okay, is it, is it a full on knobby aggressive tire or is it, is it like a 90, 10 street tire? Because, um, you know, that's usually a pretty good indication of how aggressive of a foot peg you're going to need. You talk mm-hmm. about, you know, the different types of teeth you can see on a peg for, in my opinion, if you're a, if you're a street rider, a street rider, primarily you're looking for something that's going to be fairly easy on your boots. You don't want something probably, with too aggressive of a tooth pattern. Um, but you still want something that, you know, you're not going to slide off the, the side of the peg. Um, you're going to want something that's comfortable over long rides. So, um, for me, I'm looking for something that's got a pretty good size platform, something I can move my feet around on forward, backward, left and right. Um, a lot of riders enjoy being able to, to reposition their feet easily. Um, a, a more aggressive tooth pattern is going to make that a little more difficult for a street rider. Um, and then it comes into personal preference. Some riders prefer the ability to, to rock their feet back and forth a little bit more. So you want, they might prefer a peg that's a little narrower front to back. 
Um, whereas other writers prefer to, to kind of get comfortable, get planted and have something that's, that's larger underneath their foot. That's going to, you know, prevent kind of that foot fatigue. So, you know, that can even come down to personal preference where the same bike and the same rider, two guys that are doing all the same riding together might even have a, a, a preferential difference between two pegs, um, in that same category. Um, I also feel one of the things I feel like we were talking about adventure bikes, especially on the street is a lot of these stock pegs, the ones that come with the little rubber in, um, the, the stamped, um, little tiny things are, are ridiculous for these riders, you know, um, having something that comes out further width from the inside of the bike out, um, not only provides you a more comfortable platform, but it gives you more control of the bike. You know, you spend so much time on these bikes, whether you realize it or not, controlling the bike with your feet. You aren't, when you're, you know, at speed and turning, you aren't turning your handlebars hard to the right or left to turn. You're controlling it with how you weight yourself and you're, you're leaning into the turns left or right. And having the ability to, to position your feet out a little bit wider and weight that peg, you, you now, now have more leverage from the center of the bike to, to increase your ability to, to control that lean. So, um, I, I really uh, like the, the tire, you know, right. that's a way to be honest with yourself. You know, what are you really yeah. doing with this? I mean, you can put any peg on, of course. I mean, somebody can put right. whatever peg on, but I mean, that's a good way to be honest with yourself. Do you look at the pegs as, as categories? Like, do you sort of see them as, um, okay, we've got large pegs, we've got medium pegs and we've got small pegs. Like, do you have any way to break them down like that? We do. I mean, we, we name our pegs almost a little bit on what we, we kind of expect the, the writer to, to be doing with them most of the time. So we, we have an adventure line of pegs that we call the ADV one and two, which would be kind of what we're talking about for a, a street rider. They're then, large, like quite yeah, a large peg, right? Yeah. They're, they're rather large left to right. They're, they're our largest offerings as far as peg goes, but they're, they're not as aggressive as some of the smaller offerings. So they're, they're designed for this street rider to, to have the ability to move his feet around, to, to be nice on, on his, his boots and to give him that firm, comfortable platform when you're riding hundreds of miles in a day on the highway. Um, then if you go to our next peg down, as far as size goes, we have the rally peg and we call it the rally peg because we, we kind of designed it with that kind of Dakar rally racer in mind. This guy who's who's riding aggressively in the, the sand, the dirt, the trees, the, the forest, wherever. But then he's also got to fill in that um, that transition stage. He's got to get on the highway and get to wherever he's going to ride the next day. So it's designed to be kind of a hybrid, a, a comfortable, you know, large peg when you're on the street, but it's also got an aggressive tooth pattern and a, it's a little bit narrower front to back so that when you're off road, you have the maneuverability you need and you're, you're locked in tight. And I think for that kind of hybrid rider, those are the kind of things that I'm looking for. I'm looking for, you know, a wider platform that's going to be comfortable when I'm on the street, but when you're off road, you really need a little bit more aggressive tooth pattern. Um, if, if you're going to, you know, be riding at that aggressive level, um, you're also looking, you know, if you're doing water crossings, if you're riding through mud, um, if you don't have an aggressive tooth, your, your feet are going to move all over the place in a hurry. 
Okay. And that's what's down from that. Like I'm, I'm kind of seeing the rally yeah. so far is a medium then. Yeah. And so then our, our next peg down, um, would be like the core enduro. And I, I think there's still going to be people who on the, the adventure line are going to be interested in a peg like that. It's essentially the same peg as the rally in a smaller variation. So the core enduro is going to be larger than just about all of your stock pegs on the adventure bike, because, um, I don't feel on a, on a bike that big in our opinion that I haven't seen one with a stock peg that we feel is large enough for really any type of riding. Um, they, they tend to be really small. Some of them come with those ones that are as big as your thumb. I don't even know how the guys ride on those. It, it baffles me, but, um, so our core enduro peg is going to be larger than, than your stock peg. I think for, for an adventure rider, this is going to be for, for the most aggressive type of adventure rider. The only, not the only, but the, the primary reason you might want something a little bit narrower from the bike out than the rally peg, which is what you'd be getting with something like the enduro is if you're riding so aggressively that you, you could potentially hit the peg in your environment. If you're riding through, you know, aggressive rocks, if you're riding through gnarly ruts, if you know, you're, you're fitting tightly in between trees, but even then it would, it would be only in the most extreme circumstances. Um, because a lot of these adventure bikes, you got to think you're, your bike or even your own feet can be your, your limiter on how tight of an area you can get through. So if you look, you know, even with our core enduro peg, which is um, a little bit larger than the stock peg, as soon as you put your feet on it, um, the peg is gone. So the stock pegs, most of the time, your foot is actually hanging over the end of it. And your foot is now the, the widest point of the, the lower portion of the vehicle. So the, the core enduro peg ends up at a point where it's about the same size as your foot. Once your foot is on the peg, um, you're not, you're not losing any, you're not making the thing any wider is what it is. Exactly. So now, so now you don't really have the ability to spread your, your stance out wider than you normally would, but at the very least underneath your foot, your whole foot has traction rather than with a lot of the stock pegs where a quarter of your foot is hanging off the end of the peg. So, okay. So, so this, this makes sense. So we, we've basically got a small, medium, large, which that's what I was hoping you would say because it, it simplifies things for everybody. Um, right. And in your case, it's the ADV for, for the large, um, then the rally, then the core enduro. The core enduro is actually what I'm running right now. And I really like them. And I, I did go to those actually just for that little bit of width that I found that I was clipping rocks in, in more technical uh, sections from the rallies. Um, but again, that's, that's riding style, right? And that's what we're talking about. Exactly. That's why we have options. Right. And, and so, I mean, with, with, doesn't matter what the brand, I mean, obviously we hope people go with IMS because you guys support the show, but I mean, it doesn't matter what the brand small, um, uh, on up to large, who should choose which. And I I think we sort of have went there already that the smaller ones are going to be people who are more technical. What does the large do for you? Well, the, for me, actually, ironically, I told you I'm a dual sport rider, but I'm a, I'm a fairly um, novice level dual sport rider. So even on my smaller bike, I ride on a 350, I run the rally pegs. And so that's my preference. I don't spend a ton of time in um, super technical um, sorts of areas. I spend a lot of time on fire roads with you know, the occasional creek crossing or, or rocky hill climb type stuff. But because... 80% of the time I'm on a road where clearance is not an issue. 
I like having the bigger peg, especially when I'm standing up, when I'm carving on the fire roads, being able to position your feet a little bit wider in your stance gives you so much more control as you weight the bike. So my opinion is if, if you're not hitting the technical sections like you were talking about, Jim, um, the extra width is always an advantage. Um, the only time I would go away from it is, like you said, if you find yourself consistently in areas that are tight enough that you're clipping the pegs, then that's obviously an inconvenience. Mm-hmm. But um, if, if you're not in those tight technical sessions, having the extra width, not only is it is it a performance advantage, especially when you're standing up and trying to, to kind of carve and ski through the roads, it's a comfort advantage when you're on the road. So when I ride my bike occasionally back and forth to work, being able to move your feet out and reposition them helps you get those little aches and pains out as you're you're on the highway, you know. What about um, tooth design? Yeah, so our there as you we talked earlier, there's a lot of different teeth designs on the market. Um, everything from you know the kind of replaceable screw-in teeth to some really sharp, aggressive things. Um, you know, some of the stock pegs now are using kind of these spikes. Um, and that comes down to some of the things we were talking about earlier that each of these different kinds of teeth is going to have kind of a different aggression level and you're choosing an aggression level kind of based on your, your preference. So you can always go with the most aggressive tooth, um, is, is generally speaking, going to outperform a less aggressive tooth. Um, but it's not necessarily going to be more more comfortable or good on your boots. When you so, say outperform, what you're talking about is keeping your boot planted on the peg because that's the exactly. whole point of the teeth. That's what their sole job is. Exactly. So if you're the more aggressive you are, almost any professional level rider is always going to say more grip is better for for a performance standpoint. But like we were talking about earlier, from a comfort standpoint, there may be riders, especially on the street, who don't want to be locked in that hard. They want to be able to kind of wiggle their feet around and move them and stretch. And when you have a more aggressive tooth pattern, it it makes that more difficult to do. You find your foot kind of stuck in one spot. So one thing we looked for, especially in our, our rally and core pegs, is we tried to say, can we find something that can give you that that grip, that sticking power without some of the disadvantages you'll see um, sometimes with a really sharp peg that's digging into your boot or cutting your leg when you walk by it in the, the garage. Um, and so we were able to kind of design a tooth pattern that by spacing the teeth out a little bit more than is typical and putting kind of pairs of teeth together. So a pair of teeth and then a gap and then a pair of teeth and a gap we were able to go with a tooth pattern that's that's a little bit less sharp, but still maintains the same traction level. And so it, it tends to be a little easier on your boot. Like I said, it, it won't cut you if you you bump into it. And it's, it's almost, I think of it kind of like a bed of nails, right? If you have a bed of nails that has 100,000 nails on it and you lay on it, they all kind of poke you, but there's so many of them, they spread the, the weight out over a great distance. If you lay on a bed of nails and it's got four nails on it, those nails are just going to drive right into your back. And that's kind of how this one works. Because it's got spacing between the teeth, the the sole of your boot can kind of settle in between the teeth and kind of lock in without having to have a sharp point that literally just digs into your sole by, by cutting it. 
So um, we're, we're pretty happy with how that design worked out for us. So really, I mean, is if we talked about the, the teeth being dull to sharp, let's just say that to really simplify yeah. things, um, the the dull teeth would be found probably on your larger foot pegs, which would be less right. technical. Um, yeah. It gives you good control over the bike. And then the, the right. smaller pegs are going to have a more aggressive tooth. Would that be, would that be across the board, like with all, all manufacturers? Um, that, that's, uh, that's how ours work because we, especially in the adventure market, we do have some, some smaller pegs that don't have aggressive teeth. They tend to be marketed for kind of the dual sport rider or beginner riders. So we've, we've got some bags mm. for small bikes where, you know, we don't want kids we want them to have the option to have something that, that again, when you have a sharp peg, one of the the disadvantages of it is you, you bump into it or you crash on it. It, it can cut you. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's one of the advantages we were happy with our new design is it, it doesn't really have that problem, but we do have some smaller pegs with a less aggressive tooth design for, you know, commuters on smaller bikes, but in the adventure market, for sure. Absolutely. What you're saying is accurate. Um, most riders who are wanting a more mellow tooth design are also wanting a larger peg. They kind of go hand in hand because you're getting a larger peg for a more comfortable platform. And when your comfort is your primary focus, you don't usually need that same aggression level. Whereas when you go to a smaller peg, you're choosing a smaller peg for its performance and the the sharper teeth go with that. And this is also where um, a proper set of riding boots come in because the riding boots protect oh, your shin from the from the pegs. Now, and, and talking about boots, boots matter too. If you're wearing, like for instance, somebody who wears hiking boots or a really aggressive sole, they obviously yeah. grip a lot more in the sharp uh, teeth than they do in the duller teeth. So that'll yeah, make absolutely. a difference. It, it can sort of stick your foot in position mm-hmm. where it just might be too much. So that, that would be another consideration. Absolutely. Yeah, like you said, I think... It's important and it's something I, I think I can't say all of us, but I've certainly made the mistake of trying to ride in, in the improper gear, especially as far as boots go. And um, not only is it a, a performance problem, but like you said, we, we all, I, I can't say we all. I've gone down without proper, without proper gear on and lived to regret it for sure. So mm-hmm. you certainly want to recommend finding not just the proper boots, but the proper boots for the kind of riding you're doing. We're, we're so fortunate now to, to be in a world where you have, you know, adventure boots, you have motocross boots, you have hybrid boots, you have all of these available options for, for safety and performance based on just the kind of riding you're doing. Just like we talk about with pegs, um, you're fortunate to have those kind of options available today. Like I know the difference between wearing hiking boots to wearing proper riding boots on the, uh, the rally and the corn dural pegs. And, yeah. and it makes a huge difference having the proper riding boot, not, not just for the protection, but for just the way they perform on your feet. Yeah. And, and of course the more aggressive, the, the tooth on any peg, no matter what the manufacturer is going to tear into a boot more. And that'll of course, depend on the, the tooth design as well. For sure. Um, so, um, that would be another consideration then if, when you're, when you're looking at them, not only size, but what boot do you wear all the time? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Like you said, um, Depending on, um, like you were saying, the the boot itself, the sole, how hard the the rubber is, what kind of tread pattern it has, is going to lock in differently. Or even going the other way, on a, on a smoother tooth, 
you may find that one kind of sole locks in it just the way you like and another one slides right off the top of it and is super, super slippery. So it's it's definitely important to to match up what you're buying between your boots and your pegs. When we're looking at the really the large platforms, people get into, the, you know, say the largest uh, platform peg of whatever line. Yeah. What sort of advantage is there other than comfort of putting your foot there? Well, you get a lot of the the same advantages you were talking about. For example, um, when we first came out with the adventure lineup, um, we're, we're fortunate to have a, a development team that has a, a broad variety of riding styles. So we have motocross riders, we have dual sport riders like myself, and we have adventure riders as well. And so um, some of the adventure riders were riding with the adventure peg and found that um, beyond the comfort level, having that extra width um, gave you better control of a bike that's so heavy. So, you know, for example, some one of our first test models was BMW 1200. And so riding on the 1200 GS, he was um, finding that, you know, he could ride from his house to Colorado was one of our first test markets. So from California to Colorado, he can get there pretty comfortably. And then once you get there and you go off road, now you're on the off road market. You've still got a platform that, that can perform at that level that's been comfortable on the highway. But by having the extra width, now as you stand up and you find yourself on those fire roads, you spread your um, your base a little bit. So you, you spread your feet apart a little bit more. Now you're closer to the ends of these really large pegs. As you place your weight one peg to the other, um, the, the bike wants to respond to you in a much more controllable fashion. Because you have more leverage point from the center of the bike, not only do you have the ability to apply more pressure, but you have more control over how much pressure you're applying. So as you weight the bike, it responds um, to you in a more likable fashion. So Mm -hmm. we we feel like, um, as you were pointing out, thinking of the pegs as a primary control point, it increases their ability to to do that for you. Whereas when when your feet are bow-legged in as tight as you can, you, you don't have that control. You're basically just trying to keep your foot on the peg regardless of where the bike goes. And I just had a thought when you said R1200, because that's the only bike in the market other than, I guess, the Ural, where um, you can put the pretty much the widest pegs on you want, and you're probably not going to compromise much because you've got the cylinder head sticking out. I mean, I guess a little bit lower, but um, yeah, yeah, you've still got to watch those cylinder heads when you get into any sort of grooved or tight stuff. Exactly. Anything else that you think we should consider? And then I have one question about a product here, but is there anything else you think that a rider should be considering or, or thinking about when they're looking at the pegs? You know, I think it, we've, we've had a pretty comprehensive discussion on it. I, I think it's important to, to decide, as we were talking about, I think the biggest thing I always think about is the durability of my peg, especially for, for the kind of market we're talking about with Adventure Rider Radio. So... For you know a motocross racer, durability isn't as necessarily as important. If you if you break a peg, you're right there on the track. You can push the bike to to the car and and you're done for the day. You buy a new set of pegs. Um, for me, um, you know when you when you are adventuring, when you're really getting out there, I feel like that's that's an important thing not to to forget is making sure whether you choose an IMS peg or whether you choose someone else's peg. Um, cause there are a lot of great pegs, um, out there. 
is think about if something goes wrong, is this going to hold up for me? And if it's not, how am I, how am I getting myself home? I, I want to ask you about the ADV-1 and the ADV-2 pegs in particular. Yeah. They have a lobe on them that, that comes yeah. out that, that adds to their width, that makes them what they are. Does that yeah. lobe go forward or backward? The ADV-1 does not have the lobe you're, you're mentioning. The ADV-2 is essentially an ADV-1 peg with the lobe added to the front of the peg. And the way that lobe was designed, the concept is it's, um, it's designed to, to go forward and it dips in as you get closer to your um, your brake pedal on the right there and your shift lever on the left. And so it, it provides still the clearance you need to reach and use your levers. Um, but it's designed, as we were talking about, primarily with somebody who spends most of their time on the street in mind. And it's it's kind of an adventure version of that Harley floorboard. You know, you can get the Harley foot peg that's you know, just a peg, or you can get the whole board where your foot now has the widest possible area to, to move around and to sit comfortably. So for somebody who doesn't need as much of that rocking ability back and forth, um, it gives you the widest possible platform while still providing something that works with the other portions of the bike. You can't add too much backwards or it won't fold up in a, in a crash or in a, you know, um, aggressive environment and you can't come too much more forward without obstructing the, um, the levers. So, um, that's, that's kind of our solution for the guy who's on an adventure bike, who, who is mostly a a commuter on it. We've even had some guys where we, we laughed at it in an event when one of our guys sold a peg to, he sold a set of pegs to a guy with no leg and the guy had a prosthetic and he was using the prosthetic and he came in and said, I have this problem where my prosthetic, you know, frequently comes off of the peg and it comes off of the peg because it, it didn't have a, a wide enough area to sit on. And so he was able to sell him a set of the adventure two pegs with that added lobe. And we saw the same rider again a year later at the same event. And he was like, this thing has been so incredible. Like it's, it's solved the problems he was having. And I, obviously that's not something every writer is dealing with, but it's, it's an indicator of, of what the purpose of that, that extra surface area was, is you're trying to give the largest possible surface area for a writer to put their foot on. Well, all, all the time I hear more um, stories like this of, of riders with uh, certain handicaps still riding motorcycles. It always blows me away. I think it's just great. Oh, isn't it incredible? That's yeah, amazing. Anyway, Chris, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. I think we did a good job here, and I appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Jim. And that was Chris Harden from IMS Products. We're going to take a short break to thank some sponsors that helped bring this episode to you today. When we come back, though, the internet, valid or nonsense? More coming up. Stay with us. Well, if you live in the Northern Hemisphere, no doubt you've noticed the days are getting shorter. And it's even kind of getting a little cold out there. And some of us will actually have to put our motorcycles in storage. I urge you, get out there, contact your government officials and demand longer winter days and warmer temperatures for riding. 
And meanwhile, while you're waiting for a response from your government representative, you might want to take the time to read a good book to get inspiration and get excited about riding motorcycles when you can't. Our friends at uh, Road Dog Publications have a growing stable of adventure motorcycle books. They just came out with two more that they so graciously mailed directly to Adventure Rider Radio straight off the press. The one is called Shiny Side Up, Musings on the Improbable Inclination to Travel on Two Wheels by Ron Davis. And another one is Those Two Idiots, Two Continents, One Journey, No Idea by A.P. Atkinson. It's stories like these that help fuel our imagination and just really entertain us when it comes to motorcycles. Drop by Road Dog and have a look at what they've got. Um, you can also get their their uh, books anywhere books are sold. Their website, RoadDogPub.com. And of course, anytime you deal with them, talk with them, mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio, RoadDogPub.com. I run auxiliary lights on my bike. I use them for both day and night. Probably the most use I get from them is actually during the day because that's when I want drivers coming the other way to see me for what I am, a motorcycle heading towards them, not some car that's far off in the distance with a single headlight, not to blend with the other things along the road so that they know that I'm there. Now, Cyclops Adventure Sports, they've built their company on making lighting just for that to see and be seen for motorcyclists. They make auxiliary LED lights. They make LED conversion lights for your headlights, plug and play for most bikes. So you get the advantage of that sharp instant light from LED with um, less current draw than a standard bulb does. For BMW riders, the the R1200s, they've got a Raider CAN bus system, which is fairly new. I think KTMs as well. Um, And they also make a, this, this is pretty interesting, they make a uh, Evo safety turn signal system. And what this system does is they're inserts that you you get with the kit and it turns your front signals into bright driving lights and your rear signals into super bright brake lights. So when you hit the brakes, you've got the whole thing lighting up at the back. And, you know, that's a huge concern is stopping and, and, not, and that car behind you not paying attention you know, coming into the back of you with a, a super bright LED or, or a bank of LEDs like that, that really catches someone's attention from behind you. And because it's LED, it snaps on. So it's like a flash, like a sort of an almost a, a visual explosion rather than that that dimming up that you get from a standard incandescent bulb, which is on most motorcycles. Cyclops Adventure Sports has a ton of lighting gear. They've even got uh, helmet lights. I mean, just all kinds of stuff, not just for motorcycles, dirt bikes, ATVs, even bicycles. So anyway, um, cyclopsadventuresports.com is the website. Mention us anytime you're dealing with them. Throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. But I think you won't be disappointed um, when you see how much gear there is available. cyclopsadventuresports.com This next segment is about the internet and how it shapes the way that we see things and and really feeds us information that may or may not be true. I think in many times it may not be true, not necessarily intentionally, but this is the way things get circulated. If you think about when the internet first sort of came online or first started to get popular, it seemed like a place where there was a little tiny bit of information. It was mainly advertisements from companies that put up websites. Then it became this huge repository of great information that you couldn't access from anywhere else. And now it was all of a sudden available to everyone. Remember Wikipedia, when Wikipedia became popular? Now it seems to have morphed into a place where you really need to know what you're looking for and understand how to check the veracity of someone's statement that you're seeing on the internet. I mean, we've all seen the things that are circulated now that just aren't true. 
and some of it is intentional and some of it's unintentional. I think a lot of it's unintentional. But this next piece dives into this heavily. This is Warren Milner. Warren is a retired Honda guy, worked at Honda Canada for many years, still heavily plugged into the motorcycle world, and he has some very compelling points. So we'll start with the problem. Yes, well, I, th I think the problem nowadays is, you know, the internet is is a great tool, but the problem with the internet is, you know, everybody has an opinion, and some of those opinions are valid, and some of them are not. So what happens is it's really hard for the average Joe to sort through the variety of things that are available and understand which ones are giving good advice and which ones are you know, nonsense. And there really is a lot of nonsense out there. I am originally from uh, Kingston, Jamaica, but now uh, live in Canada and have lived here since 1978. So I'm more Canadian now than I am Jamaican. And uh, I worked for Honda for 30 of those years in Canada, but I'm now uh, retired from Honda and uh, spend my time riding motorcycles mostly. Anytime you, you research anything, you have some sort of problem with your vehicle, your motorcycle, you look it up on the internet and you can just sort through days worth of postings about try this and try that. And, and I mean, even if you look at a, um, you're looking for reviews for something for like, let's just mention tires. But if you were looking for a tire review, you'll find people who write complete reviews having only ridden on them for a week. And exactly. it just doesn't make sense. Exactly. And this is the problem. And, and even worse, what I find it really frustrates me. I mean, my background is, you know, I'm, I'm a technical guy. I've, I've been in the industry. I've worked for Honda for 30 years. You know, I have a, I was a technician, a journeyman technician for years. I worked at Honda in R&D. And, and I really do know, you know, what makes these things tick. And you'll see some of these discussions on, on the web. And, you know, the guy has a problem. He's asking for advice. And some of the advice that he's getting is is downright dangerous you know and you, you feel almost an obligation to step in and, and and correct it but again the problem with the internet is you're just another voice in the wilderness they don't know there's no way of letting them know that you actually know and that this is relevant advice and what you've been told so far is is not and so what happens is and i've seen this where i've sort of waded into one of these discussions with absolutely accurate advice and been ridiculed, you know, on the website for being an idiot who doesn't know anything. So that's what I mean. There really is no way to, to tell on the internet. And, and this new trend of, you know, we'll tell you how to fix your own bike is a very, very dangerous thing because, you know, automobiles, you make a little mistake you know, doing something on an automobile and, you know, the engine shuts off or, you know, the, the car doesn't work quite right. You know, the chances are the worst that's going to happen is it's going to be inconvenient. But, you know, if you make a mistake on a motorcycle, a motorcycle's, you know, function is such a precise thing. And, and the lack of function can create such a disaster 
that, you know, people really shouldn't be casually, you know, taking advice from strangers on the Internet to tear their suspension apart and make adjustments inside or, you know, take their engine apart and set their valves. Oh, you can do it. You know, it's not that hard. Just jump right in there and do it. And, you know, it, it really is concerning because, you know, it could be lethal, you know, making a mistake in one of these sort of critical function areas on a motorcycle. And often what people are doing to find credibility is they're looking for somebody who posts a lot um, or has some sort of social media presence. And, and that doesn't tell you anything at all. It just tells you that they're on there and they're talking a lot. Exactly. And, and what happens is some of these people talk with such authority that they sound exactly like they know what they're talking about, you know. So it's really hard to sort of confront them and say, you know, actually what you're saying is is, is rubbish and, you know, actually the opposite of what you've just said may be true, you know, kind of thing. Because who are you? You're just another voice in the wilderness, you know. And the thing is, we're, we're at sort of early stages in the internet, and in the, in the, I think in the big scheme of things, things are still developing, you know, um, uh, our way of getting information and, and um, even passing information around is changing almost on a daily, certainly on a yearly basis as certain platforms become more popular. So it's, um, this stuff all has to be worked out, maybe, you know, 25 years, 35 years from now, it'll all be worked out and people will have standard ways of understanding who knows what they're talking about. But at this point, it's extremely difficult. And, and even the people who are doing the designing and, and manufacturing things are influenced by the information they get from the internet, as you had explained in your presentation that I sat through. Can you just describe that feedback loop? Well, so, so what happens is, um, you know, the Internet is a, a valuable source of information and there is a lot of information out there. But as I said, a lot of it is relevant and a lot of it isn't. But what happens is, you know, some guy hears there's a new bike coming out and he gets all excited and he starts, you know, researching on the Internet. And he's, you know, he's, he's excited. He's an enthusiast. You know, he's, he's reading everything he can find about this new bike that's coming. And so he's, he's researching and, and some of the stuff he's getting is good and some of the stuff he's getting is bad. Then you get one of these guys coming in who claims to be an expert and, as you said, is a frequent poster. So he's kind of seen as, oh, yeah, this guy knows what he's talking about. So he comes in and starts laying down some laws, you know, about whatever this new product is saying, oh, well, you know, so-and-so made a big mistake because it doesn't have enough of this or it has too much of that or it's too tall or it's too short or it's, you know, whatever the thing may be. And because he sounds like an expert, that kind of becomes the accepted truth. So then what happens is as the research continues, slowly you see people start repeating that story until that story sort of takes on a life of its own and becomes fact, you know, or, you know, fact with quotation marks. So then what happens is, you know, the story starts to spread and to spread and to spread. And then press guys get invited to a press launch, for example. And, you know, one of the things about press that you have to be careful with is motorcycle journalists. There's no school that a motorcycle journalist goes to that teaches him you know, the mechanics of how motorcycles work or how to ride or how to race or how to test, you know, at best they took a course in how to write, you know, more so than specialized motorcycle engineering knowledge. So what happens is they're easily influenced by the web as well. 
So what happens is they get invited to a launch. They're human, you know. They want to understand what's going on, so they start researching it on the web too. And they hear from the web that, and again, often this conjecture from the web is based on no actual hands-on experience with the bike. It's from reading spec charts. So this press guy will read on the web that, you know, the bike seems to be too heavy or the bike seems to be underpowered or the bike seems to be too narrow or whatever the thing may be. So when he goes to the press launch with that sort of in the back of his mind, of course, that's what he finds. You know, and he doesn't want to sort of go against common opinion. Like he doesn't want to look like an idiot and say, well, actually, I thought it was perfect in this regard. I don't know what this guy's talking about. So they tend to sort of continue that rumor and it now becomes fact. So you start to see things in these press launches where, again, as an as a experienced guy, I know this isn't true. Like, I know this isn't an issue, but it was on the web. The press guys read it on the web. They went to the launch. The guys who did the launch obviously, obviously didn't do a very good job of explaining, you know, what the problem was. And so, you know, they report back from the launch and say, yes, you know, this bike's really nice, but it does seem a little heavy, for example. And, you know, again, now that just furthers the story. And then what happens is these focus groups come along that the manufacturers or distributors, you know, have these focus groups to help them determine future products. So they come along now and they start their initial research on the web and they hear this again by now rampant story that the bike has a problem with something and so they found this on the web and they have a focus group to confirm it and the people in the focus group have often all seen it on the web so they all know it's a problem as well and so they tell the focus group, oh yes this is a real problem now the focus group tells the story to back to the manufacturer and says oh people find that your bike is is way too bad with this particular thing so now the factory goes, gets sort of distracted from reality and goes off on a tangent trying to fix a problem that doesn't really exist. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, they fix the problem. So they make the bike lighter or shorter or longer or whatever the issue was. And then they start to tease a campaign on the web to tell people, hey, look, we've, we've listened to you and we've made the next bike, you know, this way. And so then, you know, now the story actually has become fact because now the manufacturer has said it was a pro- admitted it was a problem and that they fixed it. Whereas, in fact, perhaps there was no problem to start with. So what you're describing then is, is, is a system that's completely dysfunctional. And at this point, you kind of wonder how, how far along are we? How many generations are we into this? And I mean, what happens from here? In other words, if you're, if, if, if I'm on the, say I'm looking for a bike and I want to figure out, you know, uh, I'll get a review on the bike before I, tr- before I buy this bike, what am I going to trust? How do I find the trusted source if even the manufacturer is, is influenced by the feedback loop on the internet? Well, again, there really is, and this is, you know, the problem with the Internet today. I don't think there is a a reliable source of information anymore because so much of sort of what's out there is so influenced by the Internet now that it's almost impossible to get accurate information. So what people have done, which, again, is another big mistake, is people have now turned to user groups and said, you know, I'm thinking of buying, you know, XYZ, 
you guys all right, X, Y, Z. Can you tell me a little bit about X, Y, Z? But again, a lot of the guys who write X, Y, Z have been already been influenced by the Internet. So again, you think that this is going to be honest information because they're telling you based on their personal experience. But their personal experience is biased by what they've read on the Internet. And I've seen this so many times where, you know, I've bought a bike. I've done the same thing. I've gone to the Internet and I've read the stories about it and, you know, the guys who've written it and all of this. But again, I know enough about it to know, you know, to sort of weed through and say, well, what's good information? Or what's bad information? And then I will buy my own bike and I will decide for myself. But, for example, you know, I, I bought a bike uh, recently and when I looked up on the Internet, you know, the, the, the general consensus on the Internet is the suspension on this bike is so bad, the chances are you'll die on your way home from the dealership. You know, <laughs> before you even throw a leg over this bike, you have to completely trash the suspension and buy some aftermarket pieces and put on there or you know, the best thing is to take the front end off of a Yamaha so-and-so and bolt it on there and you will be shocked how much better it will be and it will change your life and all of this. And it's complete nonsense. So I bought the bike and I rode it and there's nothing wrong with the suspension. You know, but again, it's, it's, not, it's not one guy that's saying this. Everybody says this. It's just accepted now as the suspension on this bike is of absolutely no use whatsoever and... You have to make changes to it or, you, you know, you're going to be compromised your entire life with this bike. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with the suspension on the bike. But, you know, it's just accepted and, and it's sort of the same thing. Part of the problem with the web is that it seems to be sort of black or white. It, you know, it's either good or it's bad. You, you don't often get a sort of balanced view that says, well, it's good at these things but it isn't so good at these things. You, you tend to get, I love it or I hate it, you know, and, and there's very little sort of gray area. Whereas in fact, most things on most bikes are a gray area. You know, they're designed for a wide variety of riders and most of the things are adjustable in some way, shape or form. And so, you know, they'll meet the needs of most riders. But if there's a very specific thing that a writer is looking for and it doesn't meet that need, then he starts reporting that, you know, it's, it's failed in its, its role and it's, it's just garbage. So for example, um, as another very common one is, you know, the stock tires that the bike comes with are terrible. It's a very common one. So they'll say again, you know, these tires that the bike comes with don't work in rain. They're lethal. You need to, you know, whatever you do, change them. In fact, you know, what you should do is negotiate with the dealer and have them change the PDI. And before you even get the bike, you know, don't ride with the stock tires. But again, there is no feedback as to, you know, you'll, you'll have statements like they're lethal in the wet. They just don't grip. Well, meaning what exactly? Meaning if you're rubbing your foot pegs on an oily road in the wet or... You know, you're trying to accelerate in a straight line in the wet or you're on a particularly super surface in the wet or, you know, all tires slip in the wet. So why is this particular tire worse than other tires in the wet? And again, is there a trade off? So, for example, 
if it's a bike that's intended to do very high mileage, maybe the tire that's put on there is designed primarily for wear, meaning it's a harder compound. So it will give, you know, sort of the expected lifespan. You'll get, you know, 15, 16,000 kilometers out of a set of tires. And yes, part of that compromise is so that the compound being a bit harder, it doesn't grip as well in the wet. But if they put a tire that works really, really, really well in the wet and pleases this one guy and he thinks it's perfect, it may only last 2,000 kilometers. So, again, but that guy, if he rode that tire, would tell you how great the tire works in the wet. You know, he doesn't say, but, you know, I wore half of it out just coming home from the dealership. You know, I've, I've talked to a couple of journalists that, that have that have sort of said along the lines of what you're saying, that, you know, I can't really go out and ride a bike and fault a bike anymore because there's so much goes into the design, the R&D for this stuff that I'm not even qualified to do it. All I can do is ride it and say what I like or don't like. And you got to wonder, what does that really tell us? Yes, exactly. And this is what I mean. Again, you know, if, if, if you're a journalist, you have to take the position, you have to really that you're an expert and that you have a skill set that, you know, helps you evaluate products. And, you know, they do. They have a lot of experience. They try a lot of different bikes. They get to try them back to back. So they do, they are able to have an opinion of, of this bike versus that bike. But again, you know, they are not experts, you know, in, in terms of, well, I shouldn't say that. Some of them are not experts in the particular thing that they're operating. So, for example, if you take a modern 1,000cc sport bike to a racetrack, I would say there probably isn't a journalist, certainly none that I know, that can ride that bike at its limit. So the discussion about how well the suspension works or how well the brakes work or the traction control works or the ABS works, these are all based on, you know, perhaps that bike is designed to be ridden at the limit. <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe that's what the engineers are going for. They're looking at this bike as a bike that's being homologated for racing. They're, it's going to be a platform for racing. It's going to be used primarily for racing. So they've built it that way. And so you get this thing where the, the press guy says, you know, the suspension seems a little stiff, for example. But it may be that that's because it needs to be that stiff if it's being ridden at the limit. But because he's not at the limit, it doesn't feel quite right to him. You see what I mean? Yeah. So you, you get this situation where they often can't push the bike to what is considered its limit. They're pushing it to what is their limit. And depending on what their limit is, you know, it may be nowhere near what the bike was designed for. So, yes, they have an opinion. Yes, the opinion is valid, but it doesn't mean it will be valid for every person who rides that bike. And really, it's compromise, isn't it? it yeah. There has to be a compromise in there, and that's what I mean, you have to do when you build any product, is try and say, okay, what's going to work for most of the people best for most of the time? It's, it's, so if you go and you take a bike and you, and you think that it's going to be, uh, you know, maybe ridden on the racetrack, that's mm -hmm. not what a street bike is going to be sold for. That's not what it will have been built for. It, it, that's sort exactly. of taking it to a different use. Well, well I'll, give you, I'll give you a perfect example. I, I was having dinner over on the weekend and I was talking to a guy who had a Honda RC51. And he was saying that he rides down the racetrack, he takes it to track days, and what a terrible bike it is on this particular track. It, it's heavy, 
It's clumsy. It's awkward. It doesn't handle right. He can't make it handle right. He's made all kinds of changes, probably got all the advice off the Internet. He's made all kinds of changes to it, and he's changed this, and he's set up that, and he's done this, and he's done that, and so on and so forth. And, you know, there's nothing that can be done. The bike just doesn't work, and he's learned to live with it. He loves it anyway, but, you know, it really doesn't work in a racetrack setting. And I'm thinking, the funny thing about that, and I didn't say anything, because, again, how do you, you know, realistically, how do you uh, argue with somebody because you're just a guy? And so I didn't say anything, but the RC51, when it came out, is probably the most successful racing motorcycle in the history of motorcycles. In the first year that it came out, it won the Canadian Superbike Championship, the American Superbike Championship, the Australian Superbike Championship, the British Superbike Championship, the Isle of Man, Le Mans, Baldor, the Suzuka Eitawa, World Superbike. You know, it, it was completely dominant in, its, in, in the year that it came out and probably more so than any motorcycle in history. And it won the races because I was there on the track that this guy's complaining it doesn't work at. <laughs> and that's what I'm saying. So I'm just sitting here thinking, well, I don't know what you've done to your bike. <laughs> but, you know, the way they came from the factory, they were just fine on every racetrack around the world. It seems really odd that you're the only guy who can't make it work. You know, again, maybe it's the way you're using it. Maybe it's your riding style. Maybe it's some modification you've made to the bike that you read off the internet that actually doesn't work, you know? So, but, but where do you start? You know, how, how do you have that conversation with this guy who's, you know, he's laying this down as it's the law. This is not his opinion. This is his experience. You know, he's taken it to the track and this is what he has found. So you can't really refute that by saying, well, you're wrong. You didn't find that, <laughs> you know, obviously he, he feels that way. So you just have to let him continue on in that belief. Well, you mentioned about buying this motorcycle that you just got and it has people on the internet are saying, look, you have to do changes to this right off the bat. I think almost every bike has that. You know, if you go onto the the user groups and the forums, you'll find the list of modifications that you should do to your bike before you even get going. And I think a lot of people do it. Like they'll buy a KLR650 and they'll go through that list of modifications and do them all. The the problem I see with this is you have no ground zero. You have no baseline to go by. Mm-hmm. You have no idea what you've done, what you've changed, and, and what difference it makes in your handling. So let's just, let's just look at that for a second and talk about suspension. Because you had an example about how, I think you said, every bike that, that you were uh, involved with, with the launch of, everyone said the suspension was too soft. Can you talk about that? Okay, well, there's a, there's this sort of general belief on the internet, and again, it's 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 not brand specific; it, it's sort of across the board. Um, but funnily, the more exotic and the more expensive the bike is, the less the complaint seems to exist. And there seems to be again this misunderstanding that because a motorcycle is expensive, then it has better suspension somehow. But anyway. The, the general consensus is that most motorcycles, the way they come from the factory, the suspension is too soft and, and and needs to be, you know, modified almost immediately for the average rider. And, and you get a lot of this discussion going along the lines of, you know, Japanese engineers are physically smaller, lighter people. So when they're designing a bike, they tend to set the median, 
you know, a bit lower than the typical North American who is larger and heavier and so on and so forth. And that's why suspensions are on Japanese bikes are always wrong and always too soft. But again, there seems to be a bit of a misunderstanding of what the function of suspension is. You know, suspension has a number of different roles to perform in the operation of a motorcycle. It, it's not as simple as, well, do the forks dive under braking or does the suspension bottom when you land from a jump or, you know, there's a lot of things that suspension has to do. So, for example, suspension, obviously, one of them is comfort. Um, and another one of them is uh, the the attitude of the bike, if you want to call it that, meaning how much squat you get under acceleration, how much dive you get under braking, you know, how much suspension compresses when you lean it into a corner. Um, there's also the suspension's ability on feedback to the rider, meaning how does the steering react? How does the bike feel? What's your level of confidence in, in the bike? But there's also uh, some parts of suspension that are related to um, the ability to follow the terrain. And, and arguably, you know, that's one of the most important things that suspension does. It allows the wheel to stay in contact with the ground over rough terrain. So if, if you think about uh, and, and people say, oh, well, I just ride my bike on the street, so I don't have to worry about that. But the street technically can also be rough terrain, meaning bumps and chops and so on. And, and this is something we've seen in Canada. You go to Canadian racetrack, the surface tends to be a lot bumpier and choppier than, let's say, a typical American racetrack, partly because of the cold here and, you know, the frost heaving and so on and so forth. It ripples the track surface. But also, you know, the reality of the scales of racing in Canada is the tracks can't afford to repave as often because they don't make as much money as some of the bigger American tracks. So the pavement tends to be older and broken and choppier and so on, and the, and the roads are the same. So the suspension's ability to follow the road, follow the bumps, keep the tire in contact with the ground, it's probably its most crucial function and something that, again, the engineers spent countless hours trying to work out what is the best compromise for that. And so the way I sort of say it to people is because some guy on the Internet says the suspension is too soft, don't assume that that is correct. You know, you need to ride for yourself. And an easy way to tell is your suspension should typically bottom once or twice in every ride. See, now, I think that's a, an incredible statement, because when you said that, I, I could almost feel the people who are sitting there listening to your presentation sort of gasp. He, he said, bottom out? <laughs> Why would you want your suspension to bottom out? Exactly, because what that means is that it bottoms out once or twice in every ride. It means you're using all your suspension. That's what it's there for. If you're not bottoming out, it means your suspension is too stiff. If it's bottoming out all the time, you know, 10 times, 15 times, 20 times every ride, well, then it's too soft. You know, so so the very first thing is, does it bottom out or not? It should bottom every now and then. That is normal for the suspension, and there are systems built into the suspension to help it deal with that so that that bottoming out doesn't damage anything, doesn't upset the stability, doesn't throw you off the bike. You know, there's systems built in to help ease it into that bottoming. So people think of bottoming as it's the end of the world. It's not. It, it's a perfectly normal part of suspension operation. So again, you know, depending on who you are as a rider, 
So a guy who, for example, is jumping his bike, well, he may be bottoming suspension all the time. But if you never jump your bike, you don't need to have the same level of suspension as that guy because you're not bottoming yours. So, again, the rule of thumb is it should bottom once or twice every ride. And if it's bottoming it more frequently, the first step is to adjust it. So most bottom suspension is adjustable now. So try adjusting it first. If it's bottoming too much, make it stiffer. If it's not bottoming enough, make it softer using the stock adjustments. And only when you've exhausted that do you now need to consider, you know, aftermarket or accessory solutions because – you know, again, too many people, they, they just jump right in there. So a g- example, a perfect example of this now is, you know, this modern trend to adventure bikes. It's one of the highest growing segments and so on and so forth. And what's happening is a lot of guys are going to adventure bikes from cruisers or sport bikes, bikes that traditionally have uh, stiffer suspension with shorter travel. Well, again, one of the things that the engineers have to work with is how much suspension travel does the bike, does the design of the bike allow them to have? So, for example, cruisers, you know, they want to have that low, lean, long, you know, ground-hugging look to them. Well, part of that compromise, and this is sort of a marketing decision, is they can't have much suspension travel because more suspension travel raises the bike. So what happens is a typical cruiser will only have two or three inches of suspension travel to work with. So it has to be fairly stiff because it doesn't have much, you know, travel to work with. So so inherently, cruisers tend to be a bit choppy and a bit stiff in their ride. Sport bikes a little bit the same. Again, sport bikes would typically, let's say, have four or five inches of travel. And again, they can generate some very serious braking forces because they've got very powerful brakes, really sticky tires. They tend to have short wheelbases, so there's a lot of weight transfer, you know, under braking. So they typically have stiffer suspension, again, than is ideal for comfort, let's say, as part of their high-performance setting. So you get one of these guys going onto an adventure bike that has nine inches of travel, for example, and he hits the front brake and, you know, there's a lot of dive in the front end. The guy, it feels wrong to him. He thinks that this is a problem. Oh, my goodness. Oh, this bike is terrible. And if you go on any of the adventure websites or any brand of bike, it's probably the most common complaint you see about suspension is, I can't believe how much a suspension dives under braking. But actually, that's completely normal. That's all part of having a long travel suspension bike. And it's that travel that allows it to absorb you know, washboard roads and potholes and bumps and lumps and, you know, all the things, ruts and so on that you find on trails. So, again, it can be adjusted. You can buy aftermarket springs and you can put thicker fork oil in and you can do all kinds of things that will stiffen up that front end and make it feel just like a sport bike when, when you pull the front brake. But now you're not using most of the travel that it has because under that braking, you know, it's going to dive two inches like a sport bike instead of the normal six inches like an adventure bike. And basically what you've done is you've compromised everything else the suspension does for a good feeling in only one parameter of its operation. So so you think you've made this improvement. And again, you, what do you do? You go on the web and, oh, guys, you've probably all found the the 
forks dive terribly on your so-and-so. So all you have to do is buy this super heavy spring and put in 15-weight fork oil, and it will transform your bike. And it will. It will fix that specific problem. But you've compromised everything else. You know, but again, and, and I, other I, guys reading this will go, yeah, yeah, because my bike does that. Man, this thing dies. So I'm going to do that mod. And then he comes back and says, you know, guy number one was absolutely right. This fixes that problem. And again, it takes off and it becomes fact. And I think this is what, what we all do is we end up creating problems as we go. Like for my, my process is that when I'm making modifications to my bike is to do one single thing at a time, ride with it for a long time and get a feel for what that one thing has done. I've seen other people, friends of mine, who will put all their modifications on their bike. And to me, it's crazy because you have no idea what you're modifying. And like I said before, what changes you've made. But let's look at that suspension one. I don't think a lot of us realize how much work and design goes into building a suspension to suit the bike. You had worked with um, the ATV division of Honda developing a suspension system for them and, and you even had an eye opening there. Tell us about that. Well, for a, again, a, a good example, we uh, we had an ATV in Canada that, and again, this just shows that the, the user makes such a difference to the design of the ATV. We had uh, an ATV in Canada that we felt, and this was when I worked at Honda, we felt the suspension was too stiff on. The, the machine was not comfortable. So we called up the factory and we said, the, we find the suspension on this machine is too stiff and we think we're losing sales because of it. And other manufacturers don't have suspension this stiff and the customers have indicated a clear preference for the other manufacturer's settings. And can you at least look at this and let us know? So the factory comes back and says, well, actually, American Honda are in charge of determining all the settings for North America, and they, they haven't registered this complaint. So why would it be a problem in Canada and it's not a problem in the U.S.? So we said, well, we don't really know <laughs> why, but it really is a problem in Canada. So they said all right, well, we'll send some guys over and, you know, we'll see what you're talking about. And, and to be honest, I think they were just trying to be courteous, you know. <laughs> so they, they, they sent a couple of guys over and I took them for a ride. And I said, we've brought our number one competitor and we've brought our bike and we're going to go for a ride. And you'll see right away, I said, you'll, you'll, you'll notice a difference before we leave this parking lot. So we went for a ride and I purposely chose trails that were rocky and rutted and bumpy and so on. And, you know, we'd done about 50 kilometers maybe. And I said, okay, here's how you can understand what I'm trying to say now. We're heading back to the truck now. Who wants to ride the competitor? And who wants to ride the Honda? Right? And all of them <laughs> said they'd prefer to ride the competitor because they were beat to death by the Honda by the time they got there. So they were, they were genuinely confused by this, right? They really didn't understand why. They could see the problem, but they couldn't understand how basically American Honda hadn't reported a similar thing. And American Honda were inv involved in the design and the development and the testing and so on of the machine, and this had never come out. So I said to the guy, it's possible 
that the majority of American Honda is in California. And it's possible that most of the testing that they did happened in the desert. And you're riding in sand. It's a softer terrain. The bumps are more gentle, you know. But the Canadian, you know, northern Ontario, northern Quebec are really, really rocky, really, really rough environments. And so it may just be usage. And this may be the perfect suspension setting, you know, landing from sand whoops, for example. But it's too stiff when it has to respond to sharp, sudden inputs, you know, from rocks and ruts and so on, roots and what have you. So they, I said, now, if you were to ask American dealers in Michigan, New York State, I bet you they'd have the same complaints as Canada. So R&D said, all right, well, we'll, we'll, we'll go back and we'll, we'll do our research. And, and they came back and said, actually, the Northern American dealers have the same complaint. And nobody had brought it to their attention. So they're going to send a team over to, uh, to test this. So they sent over a team of guys from Showa Suspension. Showa are the people that make Honda suspension or the vast majority of Hondas. And we went to northern Quebec and we rented a trail system, for want of a better word, and a hotel. And we stayed there for months riding through these trails on ATVs with uh, basically a computer on our back that measured every single thing that was happening, how far the suspension was moving and how you know, quickly it was moving and whether the front was moving in relation to the back and whether the wheels were leaving the ground and how much wheel spin it was creating and so on and so forth. So it was measuring every single thing that was happening. And the sort of analysis of that data was, yeah, this suspension is, is, is way too stiff. So they told us that there is nothing that can be done now with regard to the design of the machine. In other words, they can't make the machine lighter or the, you know, the A-arms or the suspension longer or, you know, they have to work within the basic design of the machine. So all they can do is work with the shock absorbers so they can work on spring rates and damping rates and see what they can accomplish. So... Again, months, months we spent there riding this trail day after day after day after day, making these very small little fine adjustments, you know, one shim here, you know, one pound less spring there, one pound spring there. And again, it wasn't just to make the machine comfortable. That would have been easy, just make everything softer. It was to make sure that it had the right balance, it steered properly, it, you know, the braking was properly the traction was proper, the, you know, the balance front to rear, you know, how much it rolled when you cornered, you know, stability on a hill, like does the machine tend to roll over backwards when you're going up a steep hill because the rear suspension is collapsing. There's so many things that had to be considered that it, it, it isn't as simple as, well, just bolting on softer suspension. So after months and months of trying, they came up with a setting that they felt was the absolute best compromise that they could achieve. And it was day and night improvement over the original. So anyway, we all finished it. And again, everybody was pleased. Everybody was happy. Everybody was, you know, and we said to the factory, okay, great guys. You know, you guys have done an awesome job. We thank you so much for coming. And, you know, when can we expect to see this going to production? And they said, oh, well, you know, it's not that easy. Now, 
that we have these settings, now we have to go back as R&D and test them to make sure that they don't cause another problem, meaning we don't have frames cracking because the suspension is putting too much load into the frame or swing arms flexing because the suspension is allowing to bottom more often or, you know, roll stability. You know, there's, a, there's an, an angle that the machine has to be stable on and we need to make sure that, you know, it, it doesn't go past some critical angle and roll, you know, when it's on a side hill. He said, and but but he said, just for durability testing alone, it'll be two years wow. to, to, to run this thing through all the tests that they have to do to make sure that, you know, it doesn't cause another problem somewhere else. So we Incredible. said, well, we said, is there any way to speed that process up? And this just shows you sort of how committed we were to the project. We said, is there any way to speed that process up? And they said, well, we have to do a minimum of 16,000 kilometers of actual riding in order to uh, pass, to, you know, to give it a passing grade. So we can, in the meantime, do all the computer simulations. That, that's fairly straightforward. But there is no way around this 16,000 kilometer requirement for measuring, you know, what actual riding does to the system and that it doesn't cause any failures. So we said, well, how about we arrange to do that testing and we rented the same area that we had been in and we hired guys to ride the ATV for 24 hours a day <laughs> for three months every day 24 hours a day right through winter because we finished the, the sort of testing all in 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 the fall so they had to ride right through winter so we had to have a team of guys that we you know they got so cold that we just swapped them out and put a new guy in and we finally got that all the tests had been completed and everything else. And we were able to bring it to market in about six months. So, but it just goes to show you there's so much that goes into that design. And, and, and interesting side note, the, the sort of head project engineer from Japan told me that when they went back to Japan, what they did is they downloaded the data from the computer and designed a test course in Japan that had the same obstacles, gave the same reading on the computer as the trail in Canada. So for all intents and purposes, they recreated this Canadian trail at their test course in Japan. And for all future models that are being designed for Canada, part of the testing will occur there so that they're confident they can have the same feeling. So, but it just goes to show you, you know, that when you're reading on the internet that, oh, the suspension on this thing is, you know, garbage. You need to just bolt on the front end from some other bike or change your rear shock, you know, or if you take off the 500 shock and put on the 750 shock, it will handle much better. You know, that kind of, of advice doesn't allow for any of this sort of balance or durability or, you know, the subtler points of how the suspension works as part of a bigger system. Again, it may improve the actual performance of a single aspect of the suspension, but how that relates to the entire suspension's role in all the other things the suspension has to do, you, you know, is, is sort of gone out the window. So the chances that some guy in his driveway has come up with a fix for something that the factory missed in their testing is just about impossible. 
With today's technology, I mean, you can see it as far as accessories go. If you go back 20 years, people were making a lot of accessories. There was a lot of home welding and things like that. You had to because there, there wasn't the products available there is now. Nowadays, everything is made to such incredible tolerances. I mean, even when you you get a, you know, a set of racks you know, for, for your panniers, for your bike, most of the time they're manufactured to incredible tolerances. I mean, th- these companies have put a lot of work into the R&D and that's to an accessory. I think most of us just don't realize how much is put into the actual design of the bike. Now, Having said that, there's something that pops into my mind when we're talking about this sort of stuff. When a manufacturer designs something, they've got certain constraints. And one of them, of course, is dollar value. I mean, they've got to keep the thing within a certain price range. The other one is going to be the intended general use. And of course, that's general use, the average person riding it in the way that they think the bike is intended to ride. Those two things will certainly govern the quality or or, or at least the, the um, yeah, I guess it's quality, isn't it? I mean, even when it comes to suspension, you're going to be limited by your your dollar value and your intended use. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, and, and again, don't get me wrong. I mean, I know I've been sort of going on a bit about this, but don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that there isn't any circumstance in which you know a person needs to modify the original settings to improve the bike for their specific use. So a, a guy who's particularly heavy or particularly light or particularly aggressive, or you know, there may be cases where it does make sense to, to change stock settings. But what I'm getting at is just to willy-nilly wade in there because you read something on the internet, you know, it does not necessarily mean that, you know, you're going to improve things. And so, you know, some things you have to look at as in, in terms of their basic uh, construction. So, for example, a front fork. A front fork is a tube sliding inside another tube. Okay, that's the basis of it. One tube is fixed and one tube slides. That's the basis of every front fork that's out there. Whether it's painted gold and, you know, or is, you know, uh, titanium or aluminum or it, it, it doesn't dramatically affect how it works. What affects how it works is the settings that are inside. So, you know, again, oh, I'm going to bought the Olin's fork from so-and-so on my bike because everybody knows Olin's is good suspension. Olin's is great suspension. But that doesn't mean that an Olin's fork designed for A is going to work better on B than the fork it came with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so again, even within high-quality componentry, you have to be careful because just because the component is of high quality doesn't mean it is suited to that particular bike. So, for example, you know, bolting on Brembo brakes. Brembo brakes are great brakes. Um, I used to do this presentation that sort of showed a a lot of people, if you read, you know, and again, obviously, you're going to see some of my Honda bias coming out here because I worked there for so long. But one of my jobs when I was there was uh, training people on what the Honda advantage was or what the Honda difference was, if you want to call it that. And what I said is if you read a magazine articles, they will often say that Hondas are bland or boring or, you know, they work very well, but they don't excite. You know, they're 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 almost work too well. They're they're you know, they're they're too predictable. They're too ordinary in their function. And and I said, you know, that that is intentional, that that is the way, you know, as part of the design philosophy of Honda. And the term that 
Honda used in those days is what they called total control. And what that means is you shouldn't need a special skill set in order to operate this machine, whether that machine be a lawnmower, a sports car, a motorcycle, you know, a dirt bike, a street bike, a cruiser, you know, it, it doesn't really matter. The, the things that are required for you to operate it, you know, you shouldn't have to have a special skill set. So, for example, when the NSX sports car came out, you know, it's a super light car with all kinds of power. But anybody with a driver's license should be able to drive it. It's not going to get away from you. It's not going to surprise you. It's not going to terrify you. It's not going to do something really strange. You know, it'll it'll respond the way that you expect it to respond. So that sort of philosophy results in uh, balance. Balance is what they're looking for. So, for example, if you have a brake system that's very powerful but doesn't offer a lot of feel, when it's tested by the press, they'll tell you how powerful it is. Oh, man, we couldn't believe how powerful the brakes were on this bike. One finger locked the front wheel. You know, like, wow, what awesome, impressive, you know, it comes with these giant discs and these six-piston calipers, and the braking power is phenomenal on this bike. But they don't really talk about, you know, whether the average rider will find that disconcerting because it's almost too powerful or too abrupt or, you know, it doesn't lack enough feel. And so maybe it's a better balance to have a little less power and a little more feel, you know, a little softer suspension travel, but it stiffens up as it gets towards bottoming a little bit. So it allows the wheels to float a little bit, you know, that kind of thing that basically everything should respond in a, in a predictable manner. So in other words, if you turn the throttle to quarter throttle, you should get a quarter of the power that's available. And if you turn it to half throttle, you should get half of the power that's available. And you turn to three quarter, you get three quarter and so on. You know, if you pull the front brake with 10 pounds of force and you, you get this much stopping, well, 20 pounds of force should give you twice as much stopping and 30 pounds of force should give you three times as much stopping. And, and if everything is built that way, then what happens is you as a rider develop a real sort of affinity with the machine. And then what happens is it becomes very predictable, but on a subconscious level. So, for example, if a deer runs out in front of you and you're going to grab the front brake harder than you've ever grabbed it before, something in the back of your mind already knows what's going to happen, though. So even though you've never used it that hard before, somewhere in the back of your mind, you know what's going to happen because you know how much more force you're giving it than normal. And because the response is very linear, you can, at a subconscious level, predict what, what's sort of going to happen. So uh, I'll give you an example I used to give them. So if you have two sport bikes, you know, one that's very well balanced and very well thought out and another one that isn't, but has lots of really nice componentry on it. So on paper, it seems really, really nice. So you're riding in spring. The roads are still a little bit sandy and dirty and so on and so forth. And you pull away from a stop sign, you know, around the corner. And the rear tire goes through some sand as you're accelerating and the rear tire spins up and you fall down. Your, your response to that is, goddamn government should do something about cleaning up these roads. This is ridiculous. You know, I could have got hurt there, you know. So now you're on the balanced bike and you go through this same turn 
and you hit the same sand and your rear wheel spins up and the bike slews sideways, but you save it and you keep going down the road. Your response is the goddamn government should do something about these roads. You don't think, thank goodness I bought the balanced bike because if I had been on an unbalanced bike, I probably would have gone down there. You'd be completely unaware of it. Right. You see, because subconscious level, when the bike did its thing and you responded to what it was doing, you responded in the right way because on a subconscious level, you kind of knew what was going to happen. And so you instinctively sort of did the right thing and the bike recovered and you managed to go down the road. And that's what the difference is between a balanced engineering package and a package that has a lot of nice stuff bolted on it, but it doesn't work in harmony. And that that harmony is what's expensive. That harmony is what R&D time really is. You know, the the months and months and months and months of fine tuning and testing to make sure that all these parts are working to complement each other, not fight each other. That is the real expense in R&D. And that's what you're paying for. That's why you're putting out the bucks for your bike. Because really, I mean, you could just go and, and manufacturers could just put out a standard frame, throw some wheels on it and an engine it and say, go for it. And you can modify it to your heart's content and make your bike. But exactly. You, you, can, you can buy an Olin's fork. You can buy an Olin's shock. You can buy Brembo brakes. You can buy, you know, a fuel injection system from Bosch. You, all of these components as, as, a, as a manufacturer, you can just go and buy them. You know, they're available. But the chance of you actually getting them together in a combination that is complementary and that works like a bike that's designed is zero. Exactly. And and this is why you see a lot of the really, really small, you know, these little manufacturers who kind of spring up and, and they sound really good because they're using a lot of high-end componentry and then the press test it and you get these things like, well, there was a, a minor glitch in the fuel delivery or there was a, you know, but they're working on that. They'll sort that out. But you always get that. You never get the man thing is flawless <laughs> because flawless is very expensive. <laughs> it takes a very long time with very well-paid people <laughs> working to make something flawless. You know, it, it, it's, it doesn't happen by accident. <laughs> you know, it, it's a lot of computer time and it's a lot of engineers testing time. It's a lot of test riders, countless hours, you know, so it's not. It's not as simple as, and again, you get this a lot on the internet, you know, oh, such and such a manufacturer is an idiot because, you know, if they were to use the engine from that bike with the chassis of that bike and the suspension from this other bike, they'd sell them all day long, you know, but, and, and yes, they would if, if it all worked as a package, but it, it wouldn't work as a package. You know, and the factory knows that. It, again, they're not stupid. They, they know what the limitations are. And, and sort of what they have to work with. And everything's a compromise. I mean, you know, even when it comes to a race bike, if you build a race bike, you, you can go so far as building a race bike for a single track and, exactly. and have it highly tuned and work beautifully on that track. But if you rode it down the road, it's going to be a piece of junk and there's going to be all kinds of things you would complain about. So it's, what I was going to suggest is then, so if we have to be mindful at least of our modifications, then perhaps mm -hmm. what we should be doing is because some of us will buy a bike and say, okay, this bike was generally made for, you know, mostly street riding. I'm going to do a lot of dirt with this. I want to do some modifications. We need to create that baseline, don't we? We need to ride the bike as it is, figure out what we don't like, what we want to modify, and then start doing it one bit at a time. Exactly. And, and this is the thing I've always said to people. No matter what bike you buy, 
the starting point is you just write it the way it comes first. Before you do anything to it, just write it the way it comes first. And by write it, I don't mean 200K. I mean go through at least 10,000K with the bike as it comes from the factory before you start second guessing it. And unless during that 10,000K there is some glaring error that does not suit your riding style. But don't feel obligated to go out and, you know, don't even try the stock settings, you know. Uh, we, we always used to have this this thing where when we were troubleshooting uh, Hondas that had a problem, I always used to say to the mechanics, the very first step is to take off anything that's not made by Honda. Okay, unbolt anything that's not made by Honda, put it back to the way it was supposed to be. Then let's make sure that the problem still exists. Now we can work forward because if, for example, it's it's got a bad hesitation under acceleration, but the guys put on a different carb or a different air filter or a different exhaust system, that may be why. <laughs> you know what I mean? We don't know that there's an actual problem with the bike yet. It may be just out of balance. It may not be that there is an actual failed component anywhere. It may just be out of balance. So my, my first advice would be, just ride it the way it comes first. All the stock settings, everything completely stock until you feel you're completely comfortable with it. Then, as you said earlier, change one thing at a time. Don't bolt on a whole bunch of stuff all at the same time because if it doesn't work quite right, you won't know. <laughs> you won't know which one of the things it is that may be upsetting it. So if, you, if you're going to do it sort of very methodically, one thing at a time. And again, test that thing for a while. Don't test that thing for the ride home and, and then do the next thing. You know, spend two weeks riding with that new thing and try some different settings on that new thing and some different adjustments on that new thing until, again, you're comfortable that you're getting everything that that thing can give you. And don't seek advice on the Internet during that phase, you know. Once you have your own personal awareness of limitations, now you can go to the internet because now you are in a position to make an intelligent or sort of you're now making a much more educated decision. I've been speaking with Warren Milner, a retired motorcycle industry expert from Ontario, Canada. episode. IMS Products has been making hard parts for motorcycles since way back in 1976. So that's for over 40 years now. They have a full line of motorcycle foot pegs to suit our style of, uh, of riding when it comes to adventure bikes. And I've been riding on IMS pegs for quite a while now. I've tried a few different models. 
I can't say enough great things about them. Tough, durable, they do what they're supposed to do. And that's one of the, the great things I love about a product is if you have a product that does what it's supposed to do, it sort of blends, you know, it disappears. I forget about them. I just appreciate them when I get off the bike and look at them. Anyway, imsproducts.com is the website. Make sure you mention us when you deal with them. imsproducts.com. just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Also, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com. And Moto Breeze Chain Oilers at motobreeze.com. Hey, you do us a great favor if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime you see them anywhere, you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. up another episode of adventure rider radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it special thanks to our producer elizabeth martin and to you the listener thank you very much hey you can get all of our episodes anywhere you hear podcasts you can get them from the website remember the website has all the show notes it's got a spot for your comments drop by the website put your comments on there and don't forget about arr raw our other show that comes out, drop by the website, check that out. You need to subscribe separately, again, everywhere you find podcasts. We also need your help. Drop by the website, click on support. If you like what you hear, well, think about it like, you know, you do a cup of coffee each day. You grab a cup of coffee, you enjoy it. What do you get from Adventure Ride Radio? And then toss something Adventure Ride Radio's way. We really appreciate it. Anyway, my name's Jim Martin. Time to get out there and ride your bike. Thanks very much. Talk to you next week. This is Simon Thomas and Lisa Jarvis from To Ride the World, and you are listening to Adventure, Adventure Rider, Rider Radio. Radio.